Welcome to the Better Questions Podcast, Season 2. Uh, once again, we're on video, and uh, we are really excited to be back. And this episode is a Better Conversations all about hell. And uh, we have a special guest today. We have Chris Date on the podcast. And Chris is a well-known evangelical Christian author, editor, speaker, blogger, debater, and he's a host of several events uh, and podcasts. And he represents a global movement known as Rethinking Hell. And uh, he specializes in hell and what's known as conditional immortality. And uh, you can check him out on his podcast, the Rethinking Hell podcast. And I got to say that it was awesome having him. And conditional immortality is not something I'd really ever heard of before. And uh, in doing some research for this episode, I checked out the podcast. It is a really interesting view. Our conversation is uh, what the kids like to call lit. No, no, is that no, no, okay. Like three fires. Yeah. For hell, yeah. yeah, hilarious. Oh yeah, we had we had some uh, burning questions for Chris, so check it out. Take a listen. Oh, this is terrible. Let's just get into it. <laughs> You're fired. <laughs> can't fire. Get blood. it? Fired? You can't fire blood. So, so here it is. Are you, are you saying my podcast attendance is conditional? <laughs> So here it is, our interview with Chris Date. Well, uh, hey, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. It's awesome to have you. Um, so it's, it was kind of funny because we were working on this season of the podcast and I actually came across um, the podcast that you are on. And when I was kind of looking at some of the details of the different guys on it, I came across your name and I'm like, wait a minute, where I have heard that name. Where have I heard that name before? And then I connected, oh my goodness, I just saw his post on a forum for one of the classes that I'm in. So super small world there. But thanks so much for joining us, man. Would you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, as you know, I'm a uh, student in the Master of Arts in Theology program at Fuller, uh, where you and I are taking a class together at the exact same time. Um, I graduated from Liberty University with a Bachelor of Science in Religion at the beginning of 2017. Um, I'm very conservative, and so uh, so Liberty was very much sort of uh, in my ethos. I shared an ethos with them, uh, but I didn't want to do my seminary education in an echo chamber. So I decided on Fuller because I knew it was somewhere where I would would get rigorous academic uh, teaching. Uh, I would be exposed to a diversity of views and be forced to interact with them and dialogue with them. But at the same time, I knew that the fundamentals, the essentials of the Christian faith wouldn't be something that would go uh, questioned, at least for the most part. Uh, And so I've been extremely thrilled at Fuller by uh, many of the things I've had to interact with and be challenged by, but none of my professors have yet struck me as not really being a Christian. So that's been nice. Um, 
my dream one day is to become a teacher, a, a seminary professor or a university professor of Bible and theology. I'm uh, a software engineer right now. That's what I've done my entire adult uh, life in terms of a career. Um, and uh, I plan on continuing to do so throughout my master's and PhD. And then at some point thereafter, after I've paid off tens of thousands of dollars of student loans, then I'll um, move on, hopefully, to start finding a job in teaching. And uh, I'm married almost 20 years and have four sons, ranging in age from five years old at the youngest to 17 years old at the oldest, which is a little surreal, a little bizarre. Um, and I guess that's it in a nutshell. Like I said, I'm very conservative. I also self-identify as reformed, which means I believe in the um, five letters of TULIP plus God's sovereignty defined as meticulous divine providence. And I'm a, a preterist or what sometimes is known as a partial preterist, although I hate that language for reasons we can discuss if you like. I'm uh, at the same time, I'm a millennialist, um, formerly a premillennialist, and uh, I am a young earth creationist, one of those weirdos. Um, and uh, I mean, I could go on and on telling you what I believe about everything, but uh, <laughs> those are some of the most important things, I suppose. So the area that I came across you on was on the Rethinking Hell podcast, uh, which I know that you're really involved with. So I guess I'm a little curious just kind of about how you would exactly describe what that is and kind of how you became involved being a part of that. Okay. Uh, Rethinking, Rethinking Hell is a ministry where we are conservative evangelicals who are committed to the authority and reliability and infallibility of Scripture. I'm even an inerrantist. I don't think there are any errors in Scripture, historical, scientific, or otherwise. Um, but we are convic convinced and convicted that the Bible does not teach what most Christians think of when they, uh, when they think about the doctrine of hell. Now, we teach and promote and defend what's called conditional immortality. Um, which just means that we believe that human immortality is conditioned upon being saved. Um, this doesn't sound all that controversial, except that the doctrine of eternal torment is not one in which disembodied human souls suffer in Hades or something like that forever. It's where resurrected people, people who had died once and have come back to life, go on to live forever in body and soul in hell um, and, you know, traditionalists, people who hold to this traditional view, debate one another as to whether the pains of hell are purely emotional and psychological or if they're also physical. But either way, these are living, breathing, embodied people in hell. Uh, and they're immortal. All throughout the history of Christianity, people that hold to this view have said that the resurrected lost are immortal. And what we conditionalists, meaning short for conditional immortality, what we are saying is that no, only the saved are granted bodily immortality and will live as embodied human beings for eternity in the new heavens and new earth. Um, and so what we think that will take place in hell is that the resurrected lost will literally die a second time. Um, they will be raised still mortal. They won't be made immortal like the saved will be. They will be mortal. They will be able to die and they will die. And that um, the death they die and, and the ongoing privation of life after, thereafter forever, meaning their everlasting death, that is their eternal punishment is, is the death the eternal capital punishment, the cosmic death penalty, if you will. Um, so that's in a nutshell what we believe about hell and why we call ourselves uh, believers in conditional immortality. Yeah, I've got to say that um, it makes a lot of sense. I, uh, for a long time, had found myself really gravitating towards the idea of annihilationism. 
but I had never heard of the conditional immortality piece of of that view until I started researching your podcast and listening to it. And um, I got to say, it just makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I've listened to some of your debates and a lot of your points make a lot of sense of like eternal conscious torment has the word conscious right in the middle of it. And if you're conscious, well, isn't that just a form of life? And so then if it's eternal, wouldn't that then be eternal life? So um, it makes a lot of sense. Well, I appreciate that. I just want to make one slight correction. I don't think it's true that mere consciousness uh, is life. I think that consciousness and embodiment, be, being mm. a unity of body and soul, if human beings have immaterial souls, uh, a conscious person who is both body and soul united, that is a living person. Uh, and so you'll notice that my emphasis has not really been about ceasing to exist, although I do think that the lost in hell when they are killed will cease to exist. My emphasis is on the privation of their lives. They will no longer mm-hmm. live. And if they, if, if in the first death we have immaterial souls that continue to be conscious until resurrection, um, we believe, based on Matthew 10, 28 and other passages, that God will destroy both the bodies and souls of the resurrected lost in hell. Yeah, thanks for, for, for that. Um I also had a question, though, too. Like, we talked a little bit about your story, um, but I wondered if we could drill down even deeper. Like, what is it about hell for you specifically that's made you um, so passionate about it that you have an entire podcast where you contribute and even the books I see behind you um, that you've contributed to? It seems like this is a topic that's very, very important to you, and I just wondered if you could expound on, on why that is. What has gravitated you to this topic? Yeah, sure. I mean, I I suppose it's a a few things. It really isn't all that important to me. What's important to me is something else, which I'll get to in a moment. But on more on the surface, things are less important. The reason why I spend so much time on this topic is because probably I'm drawn to, or or I'm kind of excited by the prospect of holding to a minority position. I think that's normal. I think a lot of us experience that. And that's something I honestly have to fight. I don't want to believe something just because it's exciting being on the fringe or something like that. But that's probably a factor. Um, Also, you know, this is a a topic, um, this is a position where there's a gap in scholarship, I think. Um, There are well-known people, well-known evangelicals hold to this view, but I think that they are, I would consider them to be not the best um, defenders of the view. So, for example, Gregory Boyd um, holds to this view, but he's also an open theist, you know, or um, you know, uh, there are Seventh-day Adventists who hold to this view, but they're Seventh-day Adventists and so forth. What, what I think was really missing was uh, a very conservative, um, very committed to, Bibli- to the Bible, um, uh, standard mainstream evangelical and, and a Calvinist at that, a, a Reformed Christian. And so this has been an opportunity, I think, for me to sort of carve out a space in scholarship where I begin to be able to make a bit of a name for myself, be, start to develop a CV, you know, so that I can go into teaching later. But I think that the the, the reason why I'm, the, the biggest reason why this is something I spend so much time in is just because I'm very passionate about unity uh, in the body of Christ. And for what I think are invalid, illegitimate reasons, a a large percentage of the church treats people who hold to this view as if they're not brothers and sisters in Christ. They will not fellowship with us. We can't be members at their churches. We can't teach at their universities and seminaries. And so um, one of the reasons I've spent so much time is because I want to um, change that. 
And I want to show those kinds of Christians who hold to that traditional view that, no, people can hold to this view because they're so committed to the authority and reliability of Scripture and be and share all the same views you guys do on everything else and differ on this point without violating any sort of essentials of the Christian faith. And and we should be fellowshipped with, and we should be able to work together in ministering for you know the gospel. Um, so if the day comes, as I hope, as I hope and suspect it will at some point in the not too distant future, that the church no longer suffers from this disharmony, this disunity, and Christians are willing to tolerate a difference of opinion on this topic, but still fellowship with each other because it's a secondary, non-essential of the faith. When that day comes, I might not spend so much time on it because at that point, the thing I care most about will have been accomplished. That's awesome. Um, I love your emphasis on unity um, because that's what our podcast is all about, uh, uniting Christians around better questions that aren't loaded with presuppositions and just forming questions that lead to action and don't get lost in the weeds. And uh, I think it's pretty obvious from if you just look at the last decade of like Christian discourse on this topic, I think a lot of the good that's come from that is reexamining those assumptions on hell and you even said, I think earlier, that you got into this because you wanted to uh, reevaluate uh, what your stance was based on what the Bible was teaching. And you wanted to not just say, hey, I already have it all figured out, but you wanted to study and relearn and rediscover and ask questions. And that's what we're all about. And I just love that, that that's part of your guys' goal as a podcast and as a ministry. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I I I think that's uh interesting the standpoint you're coming from because you addressed this some already but when it comes to the topic of hell I feel like a lot of people who take the position you're taking I hear the response being well they're just trying to um like soften of you or they just don't really want to admit what the Bible actually says, or they just want to tell people what they want to hear. And uh, how have you maybe responded to some of that? Because you're saying, no, I'm actually have come to this view from taking scripture very, very seriously. Mm. Well, in terms of my own story, um, I was, I never, for the, all the time that I've been a Christian, that I believed in that traditional doctrine of eternal torment, I never, and this may be my own like hard heartedness or something like that, but I've never really struggled emotionally or philosophically uh, as a, as a Calvinist. I think that God is sovereign, and and if He deems that the appropriate punishment for sin is to live forever in uh, in torment, then so be it. I'm okay with that. Um, I I. The reason I discovered this view and, and eventually embraced it is because I was challenged on the basis of Scripture and found that I had to follow follow it where it leads. In fact, I often describe following it where it leads as if I did so kicking and screaming because everything in me wanted to hold on to that traditional view mm-hmm. because because I knew that if I accepted this one, um, I would become a pariah in the eyes of many people that I respect and admire and even love. I've lost friendships, um, you know, relationships that were that were uh, budding um, because. I accepted this view, and I knew that going into it, that that kind of thing would happen. So, if anything, my emotions drew me and continue to draw me back toward the traditional view. I would love to be able to get back into the good graces of my fellow uh, conservative evangelicals and Calvinists. Um, 
so that's number one. There, there are those of us for whom the emotional aspect of things just never came into play. Uh, and then, but then secondly, even with somebody like, say, John Stott, John Stott, um, who was who was an annihilationist and, and held to this view, um, he is often quoted by critics as there's this famous quote where he says, uh, "I can't imagine how people hold to this traditional view without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain." And people quote that, and then they insert an ellipsis, the the three dots, and then they skip ahead a little bit to where he says we should reexamine scripture to see if it teaches annihilationism. But what they but what they over what they omit with that ellipsis, is him saying, yeah, this is, this is what my emotions are telling me, but my emotions are not a reliable guide to truth. And, and the scriptures has got to ultimately be my guide as an evangelical and is ultimately my guide. And, and so what, what John Stott is saying and what numerous, many other conditionalists who are emotionally involved in this will, t- will say, and, and this bears out in their, in their practice, is that, yes, emotions have caused me to, to question and go back to the text and see if I can find the traditional view there. Um, but then what they discover, because of their commitment to Scripture, is that indeed that traditional view isn't there. So even for the people where, um, for, for whom emotions are a big part of this, or philosophy, or, or issues around the, the mora- morality of God, or the issue of justice, and so forth, even for those kinds of people, um, that's just sort of a spur. It just gets them wondering, and it gets them diving back into the text. And what they find out when they dive into the text is that the Bible teaches something other than what they thought. What do you think is at stake with the people who you would say are in the traditional camp, because I feel like there's so many other theological issues where Christians have a difference of opinion that they're perfectly fine to coexist within. But what do you think it is about this particular view that if anything comes up against the traditional view, it's, it gets so defensive. And even as you said, it's like people don't want to fellowship. They, uh, have lost relationships over what what's at stake I really think that because of the uh, fundamentalist reaction to liberalism and modernism in the late 19th century uh, I think the result is that conservative Christians have associated um, any sort of rejection of the tradition with liberalism, modernism, postmodernism, those kinds of things. Um, and, and there is some truth to that. Some of the uh, people that throughout the past few hundred years that have rejected um, the doctrine of eternal torment have done so in part because they're liberals or, or whatever, uh, or, or, for the, or maybe they're parts of cults like Sassinians or the Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever. Although it's interesting that Jehovah's Witnesses got this doctrine from Orthodox Christians, not from uh, not the other way around. But um, but so I, I think that's what's going on. People people have inherited this 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 what I would say is kind of propagandistic this, this propagandistic idea that. Um, the only people who reject the tradition are people who don't believe in the Bible and are liberals and, and modernists, or they are part of some cult like the Jehovah's Witnesses or some questionable Christian denomination like the Seventh-day Adventists. They haven't, they, they don't know that there is a large and growing number of very conservative, ordinary, orthodox Christians who hold to this view. Uh, and I think that's what, so, so they're worried that anytime this, this issue is questioned, people are going down the road of liberalism and are going to draw people in that direction or, or, or into a cult. I think that's what's at stake or what they think is at stake anyway. Right. And uh, so when you did your own uh, re-examining of the text and diving into the, to the word, what were some misguided assumptions you encountered when you were re-examining 
the doctrine of hell because a big part of our podcast is when we talk about, you know, misguided or bad questions, they're usually that way because there's a whole layer of assumptions that haven't been examined. So, what sort of misguided assumptions did you uh, bump up against? Well, um, I suppose the very first one uh, that I encountered was uh, as soon as I, I discovered that this the challenges to this view, my immediate thought was, well, there must be tons and tons and tons of biblical passages that that appear to teach this traditional view. Um, and then when I and based on that assumption, I went looking for them and remarkably couldn't find any. That's that's you know, and we can talk about that as the rest of this conversation goes on. So that's one thing you you just sort of assume because of the dominance of this view that it must be all over the Bible when in reality mm-hmm. it's nowhere in the Bible. Um, secondly, I suppose there's this assumption that has that uh, that human beings are in in uh, not not innately or intrinsically but naturally immortal, meaning that God has created us to be. It's just assumed, especially if we attach mm-hmm. that phrase of the soul after the word immort- immortal and. You know, you probably have heard people say things like, everybody's going to live forever, so you've got to go somewhere. Are you going to go to heaven or hell? Um, But maybe if we question that assumption, are we in fact naturally immortal? Uh, Maybe different questions begin to to be revealed. Um, Thirdly, like I I already mentioned, some of the assumptions, you know, that, that I initially had, which was that it's only fringe groups, cults and liberals and things who question the tradition. Um, If we if we reject that assumption and, and ask Maybe maybe there are biblical reasons why committed Christians hold to this view. We might find that different questions arise and different answers to those questions than we thought. So I suppose those are, so those are some of the assumptions. Um, yeah, I can't think of any others at the, off the top of my head. Right. No, I can relate to that. I remember when I've done my own study on this and growing up, this is such a pervasive view, the you know traditional view on hell, that you're just like, yeah, like, it must be like literally everywhere in the Bible, like spelled out big block letters. And you just come to find that one, there just aren't a ton of verses on hell in general or like, you know, eternal death or anything. And a lot of them are confusing to modern ears. And, and I think that is something I wish the church as a whole would just acknowledge whatever, you know, wherever they land, can we just all have the humility admit, look, when it comes to this topic in the Bible, it's not like we have a plethora of verses that are super clear to modern ears. And maybe if we can just be a little bit more humble, we can maybe start to coexist that way. But I can totally relate to that. Well, so let me let me push back on that a little bit. I, I, I want to say that I'm humble and I want to be open to the possibility I'm wrong. Uh, and I do want to acknowledge some level of ambiguity in the scriptures. But I don't know that I would agree with you that there aren't many uh, texts that ha- that tell us what awaits the unsaved after the resurrection. Um, you're right. If we go looking for language that uses words translated hell, or if we look for uh, passages that talk about torment or the resurrection, you're right. We don't find a whole lot. Right. But if you go, but if you look for um, texts that talk about uh, what what the fate of human beings are. In general, apart from, you know, the community of God's people, you'll find tons and tons and tons and tons of biblical data, which promises that that end is death in ordinary in ordinary terms, death as ordinarily understood. And you'll find that cashed out in a great variety of ways. So, for example, 
Um, all of us in this recording are probably familiar with the passage I alluded to earlier, Matthew ten twenty eight, in which Jesus says, don't fear uh, men who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear God who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. Um, and you might argue, although I would disagree, that there's some ambiguity there. But then if you go and look in, at Jude and in Second Peter, you find them saying, if you want to see what hell looks like, look at what happened to, the, to Sodom and Gomorrah. When fire fell from the sky and destroyed them and killed them, and then you might say, and then you might say, well, if Jesus bore uh, what's coming to those who uh, don't accept His gift in in His atoning work on the cross, well, there's another question you can ask: What did He bear? He bore the death penalty. He died. Not in any sort of code language. It's not like He was spiritually died. He literally, physically died. And so you would think that's you know, the wages of, of sin. And indeed, that's what Paul says in Romans 6.23. Uh, so on and on I could go. The point is, I actually think there's a tons and tons and tons and tons of biblical evidence that is, in fact, very plain, very straightforward, unambiguous. Could I be wrong? Yes. And so I want to I try to be humble, but I also don't want to say that the only way to be humble is to say the Bible's not clear about this, because I think it's right. astonishingly clear. Right. And I think that's an important distinction and I think that's what makes the conversation in general so intriguing and like frustrating is hell is a very specific topic. But and so when you look in the Bible specifically for hell or the words tra- traditionally translated as hell, it is more limited. But when you talk about judgment or eternal destiny in general, you're right. It is all over the scriptures, but that's a distinction. And so sometimes we start using the word hell as a synecdoche to talk about all, like the whole eternal judgment, eternal life thing. And I think that's where we as Christians kind of maybe talk past each other sometimes is one person says a word, thinks something else. The other person hears a word, thinks the opposite. And that's what makes it so intriguing. But yeah, I think that's a great distinction. Synecdoche for all those people keeping score is the first of Andrew's awesome big words tonight. Ding. (laughs) Well, if it's okay, I'd love to just hang out a little bit more where you were just then. I know you you just talked about a few different biblical passages. Obviously, we don't have time to go through every single one, but what would you say are maybe a couple more foundational texts that you would point to that you feel like really, um, really give across this view of conditional immortality? Yeah, so in terms of the question of immortality itself, um, it's literally from cover to cover. And I say that because it begins in Genesis 3 and it ends in Revelation 21 or 22. Um, In Genesis 2, Adam is warned that when he eats of the fruit, he would surely die. And we can get into the Hebrew idiom on the day if you want. But the point is he's promised death if he eats from the the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, When he and Eve eat from that tree in Genesis chapter 3, and the sentence that God had warned them about is explained in detail. It's, to dust you will return. And then in, in toward the end of Genesis chapter 3, it, the text says that God uh, revoked their access to the tree of life so that they would not live forever. So we see Adam and Eve having had the opportunity to live forever, but they uh, but they rejected that opportunity by sinning, and they are and they're the means by which they would have lived forever is revoked, and they eventually die. But that tree of life they could have chosen to eat from reappears at the very other end of the Bible in in chapter twenty two of Revelation, where only the saved have access to its fruit. 
the picture apparently being that the saved will live forever, but not the lost. And this is consistent with 1 Corinthians 15, in which Paul describes the resurrection of believers, and he says that it will involve the mortal putting on immortality and the corruptible putting on incorruptibility. And he says that this is so that believers can be made fit to inherit the kingdom of God, which you would think implies that those who are not being made fit to inherit the kingdom of God won't receive immortality and incorruptibility and so forth. And then also, lately, I've been really intrigued by a passage in Luke 20. I think it's verses 35 and 36, where Jesus is talking to the Sadducees, and he says, those who are considered worthy to attain to the resurrection in that age um, will will not be able to die anymore, or uh, uh, cannot die anymore, or will not die anymore, some manuscripts say, uh, because they are sons of God uh, and equal to angels, Jesus says. Now, if 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 it is because they are sons of God that they are made incapable of dying, then the natural implication is that the lost will be able to die and won't attain to, uh, you know, ongoing resurrected life. Uh, so those are a few passages that talk about immortality. In terms of texts that talk about atonement, um, which I mentioned earlier, um, there are a couple of Greek prepositions that um, defenders of substitutionary atonement have pointed to historically. And mind you, I didn't say penal substitutionary atonement, although I do affirm penal substitution. I'm just saying substitution in general because that's something that Christus Victor can can incorporate. It, it's it's common to all orthodox models of the atonement. And um, these Greek prepositions are the prepositions huper and anti. And it, there's dozens of texts in the New Testament in which Jesus is said to have died on T or Huper, uh, his people, meaning in the place of, instead of, as a substitute for. And, and so the, and, 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 of course, this is consistent with the Old Testament sacrificial system that pointed to him, namely, um, one life is forfeit, but another life is taken in their place. Well, if if this, if he as our substitute had his life taken away, then the punishment for sin or or the consequences of sin, if you want to avoid the punitive language, um, you would expect to be the taking away of life, not being given enduring life forever to suffer torment. Uh, in terms of destruction, we've talked about Matthew twenty Matthew ten twenty eight and Jude verse seven and Second Peter two six, um, and there are a host of others. The most famous verse in all of Scripture, uh, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him would not live forever. Tor- wait, wait, no, sorry, would not perish, but have everlasting life. Um, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Uh, on and on it goes. In Revelation, the, the, place, the only place where you'll find anything remotely close to something that looks like the doctrine of eternal torment, you're dealing with apocalyptic symbolic imagery, which John and God himself, John in Revelation 20.14, God in Revelation 21.8, they interpret that imagery as symbolizing the second death, meaning the second time people will die. So, so it's all over the place. This is just a sampling. Second Thessalonians 1, 9, um, the, the, the wicked will suffer the punishment of everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. Uh, it can go on, on and on and on. It's all over the place. Psalm, it's all throughout the Old Testament too, by the way. Uh, the, the, the end of the wicked is in all sorts of different places described as disappearing, vanishing, like a dream that is forgotten when one awakens or like smoke that dissipates after it's, you know, from a fire, um, like, like a slug that melts away, uh, like wax that melts and so forth. It's just, it's just all over the place. I'll, I'll stop there for now. Well, I'll, uh, I'll ask just, just this one more because I, I loved everything you said and I just think this is one I hear a lot from the traditional camp, but also when I've heard this explained from other annihilationists, 
I think it makes a lot of sense. So I'd be curious how you, you would answer. What about Matthew uh, 25, 46, where Jesus says that the wicked will go away to eternal punishment? Uh, so it's interesting that you quoted only part of Matthew twenty five forty six. I know that I'm not saying you did anything wrong there. I'm trying to do I'm trying to do my best impression of the uh, of the other camp. Sure. Well, gold star, you did great. Uh, Jesus also <laughs> says that the saved or the righteous in the context there are going to receive eternal life. And so the the uh, at least a surface reading, and I understand it is just a surface reading. A surface reading would suggest that the eternal punishment of the lost could not be living forever, because Jesus says that's something that will be given to the righteous. So, so immediately our thought is, well, eternal punishment shouldn't include life. Well, what is the most natural punishment that doesn't include life? It's death. It's the death penalty. And punishment, um, punishment in this passage, the nature of that punishment isn't stated. Punishment can be fines. It can be incarceration. It can be some sort of beating. Um, but it can also be death. It could be taking life away and, and never giving life back. And if a person dies and never, ever, ever lives again, then their their penalty, their death penalty, lasts forever. And it is, properly speaking, an everlasting punishment. And now the question becomes, does that fit the context better? And I think it does, not only because eternal life is promised only to the saved, but also because Jesus uses a phrase a few verses earlier in verse 41. He uses the phrase eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And the traditionalist, the person who is convinced that the Bible teaches eternal torment, sees eternal fire and thinks, well, if the fire is burning forever, there must be fuel continuing to fuel a fire. And, and if the fuel is people, well, then people must burn forever in order for the fire to burn forever. Well, there are a few problems with that. Um, number one, the fire that came down and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah was burning before there was anybody in it. And so, and same thing with the lake of fire in the, in the book of Revelation, that fire is burning before anything's thrown into it. So apparently God's fiery judgment doesn't require fuel to keep on on burning in the way that would lend itself to this traditional interpretation. But more importantly, that phrase eternal fire isn't used by Jesus only here or even first here. He uses it back in Matthew chapter 18 verses 8 and 9 where he just sets it up as a parallel to Gehenna. And the word Gehenna is a transliteration of an Old Testament Hebrew phrase that means Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. And if you go look throughout the Old Testament, the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom is a place where the punishment of God that God meets out will be uh, the death penalty. Um, particularly striking is Jeremiah 7.33 in which uh, the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom is said to one day, it will one day be called the Valley of Slaughter because the corpses of God's slain enemies will be left unburied and consumed by scavenging beasts and birds. Um, it's also likened in that passage to a funeral pyre, which is a, a bundle of wood that is used to burn up a corpse. So all of this language about the Old Testament Valley of the Sons of Hinnom and, and the eschatological punishment that would take place there, or the eschatological punishment that Gehenna points typologically toward, all of that language is about death and destruction. And it's not only Jesus who uses eternal fire in that way. His uh, Jude, in, in verse, uh, Jude verse 7, uses the phrase eternal fire to describe the fire that came down from, from heaven and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So, in context, eternal fire is fire that slays, it destroys, it burns up, it consumes. And that perfectly fits the idea of eternal punishment being one that excludes everlasting life, meaning it's eternal capital punishment, the death penalty forever, uh, the kind that might be inflicted by fire. Right. Eternal punishment versus eternal punishing. That's exactly right. Yeah. 
I love how you reference a lot of Old Testament passages there. And and I want to know if you just think this is fair or not for me to, to say, but do you think um, a lot of, I guess, our assumptions in the modern church about hell are based more on New Testament passages and interpretations and teachings on New Testament passage rather than upon what the Old Testament has to say about life after death or hell or Sheol or getting into all that stuff. But that's what I would like to think is that we've kind of brushed off the Old Testament in this regard. But like all those passages you just referenced, the Old Testament is primarily speaking of death and not, you know, our own modern elaborate pictures of hell. I don't know. Would you agree with that? Yes and no, or, or maybe a better way to put it would, would be yes, but I think that's partly right. Uh, it's partly appropriate. And what I mean by that is uh, I do believe in the doctrine of progressive revelation. I don't think that the Old Testament, as it was revealed over the thousands of years of Israel's history, I don't think that it revealed everything fully at any point in the um, unfolding of that revelation. And in the New Testament, biblical authors are apparently inspired by the Holy Scripture uh, and capable of reinterpreting the Old Testament in creative and, and unusual ways, ways mm-hmm. that the original readers of those texts wouldn't have done. And so, and so I do think it's appropriate for us to take the New Testament and let that inform our understanding of the old. I think that's an appropriate way to treat the doctrine of progressive revelation. However, and this goes to the part that I, of what you said that I do agree with, um, where the New Testament simply reuses Old Testament language and doesn't elaborate on it, doesn't give you any indication that they're changing what the Old Testament language meant that they're, re-per- that they're reusing, then it's illegitimate for us to assume that we know what that new test that what that language means and then say oh these these new testament authors are actually telling us that this old testament language about death and destruction is actually immortal life and torment we can't do that the phrase eternal fire might sound to us like fire that burns forever but that doesn't mean that we can assume it. Um, when, when Revelation in chapter 14, when it uses this picture of smoke rising forever, we can't assume that therefore that's communicating that fire burns forever just because that's the way it sounds to us. We have to go and look at how the original readers of the New Testament would have understood that language if, again, the New Testament author doesn't elaborate or tell us he's doing something different. Um, and when we do that, when we look at the Old Testament to, to inform our understanding of these phrases when they're reused in the New Testament, we find out, as you said, it's all about death and destruction and not living anymore. Um, so what I'd like to say is that the doctrine of progressive revelation means that if the New Testament authors had wanted to, you, to treat the Old Testament language as typological, uh, and, and if they wanted to say that um, the, the, the antitype to which this Old Testament language pointed is in fact a everlasting life in, in misery that is in some way analogous to death, then yes, by all means, they could have done so. The problem is they don't. There's nowhere in the New Testament where they do anything like that. And so I think our only choice is to let, our, let the Old Testament inform how we understand those texts. That's awesome. Uh, this has been really great. I'm like just kind of sitting back and feel like I'm learning a lot. Um, I did, if you don't mind, I, I kind of want to steer the conversation in a, maybe in a new direction, slightly different, but related. And, uh, on our show, we like to take a look at, at all even possible ways we can look at, uh, a topic, um, again, to try and leave no stone, stone unturned because there are no, um, questions that, 
should be off limits, so to speak. There are some that are un- are not helpful, but how do you know that until you've asked it, you know? Um, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on maybe even another segment, possibly even more of a fringe view um, than conditional immortality, which is this idea that when the scriptures speak of heaven and hell, that they're speaking either, and this would be this fringe view, solely about present realities, or is there a way we can kind of wrap some of that idea into conditional immortality? That, And basically what I'm asking is, what do you think about the idea that heaven and hell are as much present realities as they are future realities? Um, to further qualify it, you know, at least part of my interpretation of when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, I see him speaking as much about how we are to live now and help bring the kingdom through our action and through our displaying of love uh, for the world and for one another. We're bringing the kingdom here now today. Um, And could that same thing be true on the other side, that people could be living in a version of hell, so to speak, here and now based on their choices or on the choices of others or just circumstance? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, my, my answer is no, I don't think that's possible. And and I say that <laughs> a little tongue in cheek. Um, but, but I do mean it. Um, you know, first of all, it's interesting. You, you were right to point out that Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven as if it's, um, uh, it's, it's, it's being thrust into the world now and in the eschaton it will in, in its entirety, the heaven will come down to earth and the dead will be raised and live forever with him and so forth. Um, but, but that's the kingdom of heaven is uh, in some way experience it being experienced here, but I don't see biblical authors speaking of the now as heaven. Um, and likewise, I don't see biblical authors anywhere using the language of hell, um, Gehenna, Lake of Fire, whatever. I don't see them using that um, uh, to speak of the now. And there's certainly no language about like the kingdom of hell or anything where we could say that it's somehow intruding on the now. There is language like... Um, Jesus is sometimes quoted by English translations as saying the, king, uh, the, the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. And you might say, well, that sounds like it's something about now. And in a sense it is, but the Greek is actually the kingdom of Hades. Um, the, the picture of the gates of Hades or the gates of Sheol um, not being able to hold Christ's church is a promise of resurrection. It's saying the, the grave won't be able to contain his bride. He's going to return and the church is going to burst forth through the gates of Hades and, and come out from come out of the dead uh, and live forever. So I, I don't see, yeah, I don't see any language in, in the Bible in which hell language, uh, Gehenna, Lake of Fire, stuff like that, is used in the present. It is something we as English speakers do, right? Oh, this is, it's hell on earth. You know, this is, oh, it was such hell doing such and such yesterday or whatever. But I don't see biblical authors doing that. And so I'm extremely hesitant um, to give any sort of credence to that proposition. But but I, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful or anything to it. I just don't think there's any biblical uh, grounds for it. Certainly. That's interesting. Uh, I would love to hear just a little bit more on that. So uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is, uh, so when we, when the Bible uses words like Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, or Sheol, or I've even heard, and uh, if you know any better, please let me know. I've even heard that the Lake of Fire has historical roots to allusions to uh the Dead Sea in the time of um, Sodom and Gomorrah and the sulfur, the sulfuric acid and stuff. And 
the way the image at that time would have made the Dead Sea look like. So how then are these words not in part representations of hell on earth in the present when they refer to things that happened on earth, like all of the wars, the devastation, because to me that makes it seem like, well, at least in some part, the biblical authors, the speakers are using at least on earth language as a picture. So uh, how would you then, uh, right. S- right. Are you, are you tracking with what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm totally tracking. And, and you make a good point. Um, I, I'm not so sure uh, I, I would agree. I'm not so sure I've seen what you're talking about when it comes to the lake of fire. There are right. some there are some scholars who posit that the uh, eternal fire language that Jude uses um, is is an allusion to the smoke that allegedly was still rising from the plains in that day. But mm-hmm. uh, but I don't think that's actually what Jude's doing, and I'm not aware of. Uh, the Lake of Fire being right. used in that way. That having been said, you're absolutely right that Gehenna is is um, uh, an appeal to a real place that is there now and was there then. Um, it's sometimes um, mistakenly said to be a place where trash was thrown and burned. That's actually a late development. There's mm-hmm. There doesn't appear to be historical evidence for that. It was rather a place historically where idol worshippers burned up children in fire as sacrifices to the god Molech or to Baal or whatever. Um and uh, and you're right. They are Jesus, uh, and really Jesus is the only one in the New Testament who does this. Arguably, James does at one point. Um, but what but what Jesus is doing, he's not saying that what Gehenna represents, which is death and destruction, is a present reality and a future reality. What he's doing is he's saying you're familiar because of your familiarity with the Old Testament with the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, sons of Hinnom. Um, being a place that historically was associated with death and with destruction. And what better of a picture, what better of a metonym, maybe that's not the right word, but what better of a um, uh, a pseudonym, that's not even the right word, but what better of an eschatological referent to, to evoke um, the picture of death and destruction than this Old Testament Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, which eschatologically in the Old Testament was a place where God's enemies would be slain and destroyed. What you're proposing is a bit different, right? Um, you're proposing that the picture of the sons of Hinnom is both uh, evoking a picture of the eschaton for the wicked in which that's death and destruction. And right now, in some sense, that future reality, because of its association with the historical value of the sons of Hinnom can appropriately be said to to describe things going on in the here and now, and that's what I'm saying. I don't think is justified. I don't I don't see any justification for right. it. So so for example, if Jesus had said, um, if Jesus had said, you know, my disciples, right now you're going to go through a lot of pain, a lot of suffering as you go before kings and are persecuted and so on and so forth, and it's really going to feel like Gehenna. <laughs> Right. Well, then you then I think you'd, you'd have a leg to stand on um, and you may and I just may not be aware of such texts. But without those kinds of texts, the only um, typology going from, you know, the type that is Gehenna to the antitype that is hell, it's only from past to future. It's it's not it's not the present. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes more sense. And I guess maybe to make my own question more clear, though, if you've ever listened to this podcast, we, I can get lost in the weeds pretty easily. So can I, uh, so don't take me there. I, I just find it interesting um, that when Jesus specifically talks about Gehenna or hell or however you want to talk about that, whereas today, if we were to talk about hell, 
we have our own um, framework for an idea of a location that exists outside of time and space that is its own particular setting that doesn't need any on-earth kind of uh, parabolic language to it. But in the Bible, it seems oftentimes when words translated as hell are used, it isn't in reference to, I mean, I guess Hades would be, but a lot of them aren't referenced to some sort of framework that exists in the cultural consciousness for something that exists off earth, off site in some, you know, ethereal plane, but rather they're using something that has to the original uh, listeners like a, oh, that's an actual place here nearby we can see smell touch so i find that interesting because in modern times when we talk about hell or concepts like it like purgatory or whatever these are frameworks in the cultural consciousness that we all know that's not someplace you can find on a map that's someplace in an ethereal plane so i guess that's what i'm trying to say is uh pointing out that distinction to the way the language is used and what sort of things we can mine from that, if that makes any sense? No, it does make sense. So, so let's let's take your analogy um, uh, and put more teeth on it, and let's use the example of say Chernobyl, right? If, right, if I, right. if I if I if I if I evoked the picture of Chernobyl to describe, and and, I, and let's say I was a let's say I was a Nostradamus type figure, and I was telling you, hey, in in fifteen years there's going to be some war, and it's going to be like Chernobyl all over again. Well, there what I'm doing is I'm taking a real historical on-earth place that we're all familiar with, and I'm using that to tell you about what I some, – to evoke something about what I think is about is going to happen in the future. But it doesn't mean I'm telling you anything about the here and now, mm-hmm. right? right? Or if I said – yeah, that, so that's my point. They're, they're using a historical reference, a real geographical place to evoke pictures about the future. I don't see them using that historical reference to evoke pictures about the present, which I think was – the kind of the the gist of the question you guys were originally asking right interesting i think the the only uh the only piece that i still might feel we could even speak to um and 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 maybe not because this might be down a road that you aren't comfortable going um and maybe we shouldn't go either basically the real question is is kirk cameron getting left behind or not exactly we need like this is what we really need to be talking about (laughs) don't get Uh, me started on left behind (laughs) yeah um but there is part of me that when i view scripture um i'm starting to try and look at it not only as a historical record because i think it is especially a lot of of specific text but also as ancient literature and if you look at scripture as literature and what literature does and i need to this is where i'm asking because i need to study more about the ancient literature um but as far as today when so think about somebody writing the words of jesus right their main goal may not have necessarily been i'm going to literally write word for word verbatim what he said their goal may have been as like i recently watched bohemian rhapsody i'm sure the script for that movie didn't have verbatim what freddie mercury said in any given situation but they put words in that character's mouth that conveyed um not only the spirit of what truly happened but also to tell a very pointed message 
and to to there was a literary purpose and so part of me wonders like what you're saying makes sense if every word that we have is literally what jesus said but i'm wondering if there's a a sense where there could have been a literary purpose on top of it that was where you could glean some of uh, the present here and now interpretations from what they talked about if that makes sense it does, and and you know John is is particularly prone to doing something along the lines that you're describing. Um, I, I, it might be better to say that what he's doing is he's offering a theological interpretation of the history. Um, but of course, John is doing that a lot more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke appear to be doing. Number one, and number two, I agree with you. I don't I don't think that the words recorded in the Synoptic Gospels are necessarily the literal words that Jesus spoke. In fact, I think it's probably not the case that he was in his ordinary daily life, speaking Greek. He was probably speaking Aramaic or Hebrew. Um, but but what they did try to do is capture the, the gist of what he was saying, the message that he was delivering. And nowhere do any of the synoptists, uh, or John for that matter, take whatever it was that they, they knew Jesus said and cash it out in terms of something going on in the present when, when he's using future eschatological hell language. Right, and you would think, sure, if they could have done that, right? He he could have he could have been warning about future eschatological punishment, and then his biographers could have um, interpreted that, especially John, interpreted that in such a way to comment on the here and the now. Um, but there's no indication that I can see that that's what they have done, uh, and so I guess I guess really the only what I'd be what I'd be interested in seeing from somebody who advocates the for the what you're proposing is some text that we could dig our teeth into and see if that's if there's any evidence that that's in fact what they're doing because I haven't seen any. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, the motive behind all of these questions is you don't want to eisegete, you don't want to read into the text and so I think it's always helpful to try and get inside the headspace of the original listeners, original audience, the writers to see and am I in any way reading in my own frameworks that was that were taught and instilled in me about hell as a place outside of time and space and not reading into it. But, you know, that's always the fear. But I would like to move the conversation maybe away from all that great hermeneutical stuff. And how does uh, the conversation around hell in the church today, um, how does that affect like real face-to-face ministry in the church? Because I I've seen a lot of debate around this topic and a lot of it I've enjoyed watching, listening. Uh, but I think sometimes we all get a little uh, hesitant to think about how we use the doctrine of hell in our own ministries, in our own witness, in our own evangelism, because there's so many caricatures out there about, you know, I mean, you know, people on the street with signs or, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God, and some of that stuff's fair criticism, some of that stuff's unfair caricatures. But for you, maybe you can talk about your own ministry. How does the doctrine of hell come into play? How is it used? Yeah. Well, so, um, first of all, I do think there is a place in evangelism for hell. But I think there are some bad questions asked in that capacity Mm. that, that could probably be replaced by better ones. So, for example, you know, it, it, it historically was not uncommon for evangelists to ask unbelievers, you know, do you know where you're going to go when you die? 
but the problem with that is multiple fold, uh, not the least of which is that the the debate about hell isn't about where you go when you die. It's about where you're going to go at some point in the future after you've died and then are later raised. Um, and furthermore, that question cashes the gospel out as if it's a place that gets you into one location over another, when biblically it's much more about life and death. Um, so, so I do think there's a place for it in evangelism. But I, I tell you, I think that um, I think that with in the evangelistic context, I think the 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 uh, kinds of questions that are going to be more beneficial are things like, you know, uh, do you want to live forever? Um, does that thought appeal to, appeal to you? And if not, why not? Is it because your life right now is accompanied by sadness and grief and pain and misery and death and sickness and disease and so forth? What if all of those things were gone and in their place was joy and bliss and fun and and learning? You know, what if, what if you not only get to live forever without death, disease, sickness and so forth, but you also get – what if you get to explore the cosmos – Right, we're limited by our technology and by our mortality. We're limited from being able to explore the depths of the ocean or the distant star, you know, stars on the edges of the um, of the galaxy or whatever. But what if you've got eternity to do that, and you won't die? So you could spend you know hundreds of years on a spaceship, for example, getting to another planet and explore it. Do these kinds of things, along with bliss and a lack of death and stuff, do these appeal to you? And if so, what if I told you there's a way to do that? And because the reality is unbelievers are right now trying to achieve that kind of immortality, but they're trying to do it through technology. Um, you know, uh, Transcendence, that movie with Johnny Depp, you know, they up, he uploads his consciousness into a computer or that movie Chappie, you know, it's his consciousness is trans transmitted into a robot or, or take, um, uh, vanilla sky, you know, uh, uh, cryogenic freezing. There's all these ways in which humankind is desperately trying to avoid death and, and by achieving immortality. Mm. And what if, what if we change our evangelistic emphasis on hell and, and start talking about the gospel as an escape from death rather than an escape from hell? Well, then I think you might have something. Um, in, in terms of inside Christianity, inside the spiritual lives of Christians, this isn't this hasn't been so much uh, the case with me because, as I said, I'm I'm hard-hearted or stubborn or what. It was never a, an emotional issue for me, but I can't tell you just how many emails and, and other kinds of contacts we've gotten from people whose whose faiths have been enlivened. You know that they they've. Um, they've become passionate again about their faith, and they've been able to worship God with a freedom they never have before because this thought of their loved ones be suffering and writhing forever in agony just drove them nuts and, and, and made it really difficult for them to trust and, and love and worship God freely. And and now that they know that God is just and will will mete out severe punishment, but it will be a punishment that ends lives rather than makes them live forever in torment um, – it, it, it enlivens it for them. For other people, it, it doesn't necessarily make them. It doesn't make their faith stronger, but it does. It has um, uh, reignited their thirst for knowledge from Scripture, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, I didn't realize there was this debate." Well, I'm going to go dive into Scripture and 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 start learning in ways maybe I hadn't been passionate about before. And and most importantly of all, arguably, is that there have been plenty of people that I've spoken to or heard from who've told me they couldn't believe until they discovered that the God of the Bible was not the God of the doctrine of eternal torment. So, so there are indeed these practical ways in which um, a doctrine of hell uh, does matter practically, and a doct my doctrine of hell, I think, has real powerful um, practical implications in these various ways I've described, and perhaps others. Uh, I'll give you one more. Um, 
I am, and I've always been ever since I've been a Christian, opposed to abortion and to euthanasia. And it's because I've always intuited that there's something precious about life. <laughs> and um, one of the things you realize when you, when you discover that the gospel is not about escaping life in a bad place in order to go to life in a good place, and instead you realize now the gospel is about saving lives altogether, and that apart from the gospel, people will not live. Well, all of a sudden, life takes on a whole new level of preciousness and, uh, and of dignity and of value and of worth. And so now I'm all the more passionate about, uh, about um, the, lives, the lives of, um, of those who, from whom it's taken away unjustly, whether that's abortion or euthanasia or genocide or whatever. So, so yeah, I think there are a variety of ways that this can have a practical effect. I really like that uh, because I recently read uh, Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari. It's a very you know secular book, and I wanted to get that perspective. And one of his arguments he made was that hum- humanity as a society has, for the most part, conquered uh, you know plagues, drought, famine, sickness, hunger—things that for most of human history were just like devastating war and and since as a society we've been able to put those things in check the only thing left for us to really tackle is death and he argues that the future of this century is going to be humanity trying its hardest to become immortal and i love what you're saying by putting the emphasis on the conversation on do you want to live forever this is what immortality really will look like because that might be what the pulse of our society will be on is trying to figure out what this looks like. And instead of saying, Hey, God wants to see you burn. And people immediately just, you know, stop listening. You're putting it on like, no, look at this beautiful picture of immortality this way. And I, I really like that. I think that really is the best Avenue. Yeah. And, and, and if I might just very briefly put just a little bit more, um, add a little bit more to this beautiful picture. I think you're describing the ways in which we are attempting to achieve immortality are, I think, really subpar mm-hmm. visions of immortality. Um, even even in artif- you know, one of the one of the ways in which it's really being explored right now is is artificial bodies and being able to transfer our consciousness into artificial bodies. But imagine the kind of tactile sensations that we take for granted every moment of every day. The feeling of warmth when you embrace a loved one, or or the feeling well, of a sweet. Uh, some of us know what that? that's like. Some well, of us know it <laughs> <laughs> but it go on, please, please, uh, please describe or, it. <laughs> it could, it could be a, a a cousin or a brother, but you know, How about a brother. A, yeah, no, that's yeah, there you go, there you go. Um, but, you, but that's what I'm saying. There are these ways in which all the technological means by which we're trying to achieve immortality, with arguably the exception of cryogenic freezing, um, they result in something that's less human. But the picture of immortality that we can offer as Christians is is more than human. We're not we're not just immortal, as as amazing as that will be. But we'll we'll have bodies again, and we'll get to feel warmth. Right now, we see a little tiny fraction of the of the electromagnetic spectrum. Right, the, uh, the visible light is a very small. What if, what if we could yep. see a larger fraction of that spectrum? You know, we're not becoming less human, which is, I think, what's happening with technological immortality. We're becoming more human in resurrection and glorification. And I think that's, a, I think that's exciting, way more exciting than floating around on harp, you know, floating around on clouds with harps or whatever, or, or for that matter, being uploaded into a digital consciousness. The, the idea of having, and, and my obese, you know, old, frail body being replaced by a powerful and, and 
fit one. It's just, it's, it's amazing. It's a real beautiful picture of eternity that I think resonates with this fear of death that is so natural to us as human beings and this longing we have for immortality. I think it's a beautiful picture. Yeah, it's good stuff. Awesome. Well, uh, we said earlier that our main goal for this podcast is to figure out how do we ask questions and how do we have conversations that ultimately gear toward unity. So I guess I'd love to kind of wrap up by asking you, when it comes to this conversation that's very polarized, how how do we approach this conversation in a way that can begin to foster unity rather than division? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, And honestly, this is probably where I'm going to be the most quiet out of the whole conversation because I don't know that I have good ways of doing what you've described in the form of questions. Um, that's where I've been really struggling. I, I, you know, some things that come to mind would be, uh, does, you know, what, what about, what, what aspects to a biblical doctrine of future punishment are definitional of the Christian faith and what, and what, and which ones aren't. So for example, um, I think, uh, definitional to the Christian faith is that there will be a hell. Okay. Um, I don't think there's any way around that. But what takes place there um, is, is, is c- can we disagree on what takes place there without violating any essentials of the faith? And if you look at like the, the, the ecumenical creeds from the early centuries of the church, they certainly seem to think that you could disagree on that topic. In fact, in those early centuries, there were people who held to all three major views of hell, eternal torment, conditional immortality, and universalism. And they didn't codify any one of those three views in the ecumenical creeds. So I think we can ask, you know, what... What, what minimally do we have to affirm about hell in order for us to be able to enjoy unity together? And can we tolerate diversity uh, when it comes to all other questions surrounding hell? Um, we could also ask, um, we could also ask what, is, what should be our chief motivation for following Christ? Should it be to escape final punishment, whatever that looks like? Or should it be this glorious, self-sacrificial, giving, self-giving love that Jesus has lavishly showered upon us by becoming incarnate and going to the cross and dying in our place, and then and then rising on our behalf so that He will one day give us immortality? It, 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 could it could it be that maybe focusing on that in terms of our motivation and our and our passion and our drive will um, not only uh, heighten our our spiritual lives and and and, and um, you know make us walk more passionately in the footsteps of Jesus, but also if if instead of arguing, now mind you, I like arguing and I think it's good to argue about this topic, but in but it, rather than argue with each other um, uh, combatively over what are the you know what are the differences about hell, what if instead we were focused on what can we agree on when it comes to what eternal life is going to be like? Well then I think that will much more naturally foster unity than some of the other kinds of questions we might ask. So those are sort of my from the hip uh suggestions, but I'd love to hear what sort of thoughts you guys have when it comes to the that question. I was I was actually thinking along the lines of what you just ended with is as Christians I think we much more easily go to the things we disagree on than what we agree on. And no matter which uh, view of hell you land on, pretty much everyone in those view agrees more on their view of eternal life than on their view of eternal punishment. But yet we never, we never get to that part of the conversation. It's just, Oh, you think that? Well, 
you know, get out of here, get behind me, Satan, that kind of stuff. And I think really if Christians shifted a lot of their conversations about hell and, you know, eternal life to the eternal life part, like we talked about earlier, so much about the discussion on hell has to do with more than just like, what does hell literally look like? And more to do with just like, what does eternity look like? And if we can all as Christians unite around that eternal life picture and the beautiful, glorious things Christ can do and through our lives and redeeming us, I, I, I think we all can unite around those questions. Yeah, this, I mean, it's a really tough thing to, uh, trying to think about um, how to disagree with unity. Um, how to disagree agreeably. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How to disagree, with, especially in our polarized, like, social media comment soundbite anonymous culture it's like i can just walk up and slap you in the face you have no idea who i am what just happened um i don't know it this may be like a giant stretch but like what came to mind when andrew was talking is like that verse where it says like greet one another with a holy kiss and like we can make jokes about that or whatever but at the same time it's like it's really hard to hate or yell at or scream at someone if you're right when you greeted them, they gave you a kiss on the cheek. I, or like, I don't know. Someone did that at my Bible college and they just out of nowhere planted one on my cheek. It was uh, not my favorite. <laughs> Followed thing. by a punch in the face. Well, maybe a modern day version of that is like a handshake or like buy their coffee or something. And I just wonder if like, if we're going to interact with someone we disagree, like a, just a practical step is like, let's put down our phones for a second and try to meet up face to face. And at the end of the day, like, hug i don't know a holy hug a handshake look them in the eye and really uh you know come with some compassion for a fellow brother and a fellow human being the other thing is like i i don't know i don't know how to instill this in people other than just to try and say it to them and and get them to understand but like what if we really listen to each other with the intent of trying to understand instead of just yeah, waiting for them to stop moving their lips so we can inter- insert our point, you know, and it's like, those just come to my mind. It's No, absolutely fantastic points, especially the, the uh, you know, seek to have these conversations, uh, in these conversations, seek to have understanding above and beyond seeking to convince the other person. Because And this is especially important in this debate because there are so many common popular misconceptions about my view out there. I mean, for example... Uh, I can't count the number of times people have told me, oh, you think the punishment is ceasing to exist. Well, no, I don't. And if instead you had asked, what do you think is final punishment? You might find out, oh, maybe I maybe I think something differently than what you thought. So, yeah, I think that's fantastic. I, I, um, as much as I love hugging and, and shaking hands and stuff, I, I don't agree that it's hard to do so and still hate the person. I've, I've just uh, flew in uh, to Seattle from Southern California and watched a couple of movies on the plane where people who absolutely despised each other shared a drink with each other or, or, or gave each other kisses on the cheek and, and, and they're doing it begrudgingly, not, not, Mm -hmm. um, not out of love. But I do think that if we go into these kinds of conversations, seeking understanding, not only understanding, I, I think arguing is good. I mean, after all, how do we, how do we find out we're wrong about something unless a brother or sister challenges us with a view that we hadn't considered or, or hadn't considered sufficiently. But, but if, but if we make that the secondary goal, and make the first goal understanding where one another is coming from, I think you're spot on. I think that would be huge. Yeah, I think everything you guys have said is fantastic. And maybe the only thing I would add, I, I think that 
if we do what you said, Chris, or we take the time to understand where people are coming from, we also realize that what is at stake for all of us is also very similar because when it comes to the traditional view, when it comes to the uh, view of conditional immortality, and then even we haven't really talked much about universalism, which is fine, but yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but I, I would actually say that I know that there's lots of different versions of universalism, but a lot of the ones that I have heard wouldn't even necessarily say there is no hell as much as maybe they would argue for whether it's whether your uh, residency there is permanent or not. Um, all that to say, all of those views would agree that hell is or death is not a place is not something we desire for people to experience and that life is. That's right. Absolutely. To me, it doesn't make sense for like fellow brothers in Christ to be just like so filled with hatred for one another. Because if you think about it, like, okay, if your difference of opinion on what hell is like is not central doctrine to being saved or salvation, then presumably you're going to spend eternity in heaven, eternal life uh, in the new earth with right, like right next to that person. Like it just doesn't make sense. Are you going to carry that hatred into the next life, whatever that is, you know? And I don't know, that might be eye opening when that happens for several of us to be like, Oh, you're here. I really didn't think you would be, but like, I don't know. Is there a complaint box somewhere around <laughs> yeah, here? Exactly. Like, Going to put that in there. It's tough though because I do think it's appropriate for us to identify uh, doctrines that are in fact definitional to Christianity and which it is in fact legitimate to divide over. Um, I don't think I can fellowship uh, in in a uh, in, in a fellowship context or, or minister alongside uh, a Unitarian. For example, I think the doctrine of the Trinity is essential to Christianity. I think that the deity of Christ and His dual natures. I think salvation by faith, or you know, by grace through faith alone, um, is essential and definitional to Christianity. Um, Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, he describes a couple of people named Hymenaeus and Philetus, who thought the resurrection had already happened, and he said that their 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 uh, teaching is spreading like gangrene, like cancer, and it's shipwrecking people's faiths. So there are um, there. There are deviations from the truth that are worthy of condemning and worthy of dividing from people who hold to those views. And so it's really important that we ask ourselves, is this one of those? Because apparently as Christians, we're comfortable fellowshipping and ministering with one another, whether we're premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial, whether we're cessationist or continuationist, unless we're John MacArthur and we think that people are heretics who believe in the, charis- you know, the charismatic gifts, uh, you know, um, or, or who are uh, – uh, partial preterist and futurist, or whether we're dispensationalist or covenantal. I mean, on and on it goes. We're so comfortable fellowshipping with and ministering with, with each other on all these other issues. What about this one disqualifies it from being something we can we can tolerate difference of opinion on? Um, I, I have yet to identify one. So I, I'm with you. I think that we need to we need to stop being at each other's throats over this. Debate it rigorously, vigorously. Um, but it's not worth some, it's not worth hating someone over or or even dividing with, from somebody over. Yeah, and that's what I love about uh, rethinking hell is uh, what I've seen on there is I've seen names of people who the little I know about their work I'm like well this person uh, 
and that person are definitely not in agreement and yet their voice is still heard and I love that you do that because how else are you going to equip the body to read the word right and, and follow the right avenues if they're not being exposed to the best arguments and I, yeah yeah so and, for example although we believe in conditional immortality we've had Douglas Wilson and Craig Blomberg and Denny Burke and some others who hold to the doctrine of eternal torment and those are some of people's favorite episodes you know, because because it is where people who disagree get together and, and discuss it with respect and in love. Uh, in terms of universalists, we've had Robin Perry and Brad Jersak and others. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you. We don't want to only inundate our listeners with conditionalism, um, even though we think it's true. We want to expose people to the best that are our, um, our theological opposites, uh, I guess, however you want to put that, ha- have to offer for sure. Well, then let me run with that to end our time together today. I want to ask you two final questions. The first one, for people who are listening and they maybe want to dive more into uh, this journey and kind of discover more, but maybe they don't have a seminary degree, uh, maybe didn't understand a lot of the words we used on this podcast today, what, what would be some good resources you would point them toward to kind of begin understanding some of the different arguments and views? Yeah, well... Um... So in terms of how instead of in terms of how to familiarize themselves with my view, uh, I think Rethinking Hell is a great place to start. We do have the Rethinking Hell podcast, and we've specifically geared episodes four and seven uh, to be introductory for people. And so in episode four, my my friend Glenn Peoples, uh, who is a uh, PhD in, in Christian philosopher in New Zealand, he gives a positive biblical case for this view. And then in episode seven, I answer a lot of common objections uh, to this view. And I think that's a great place to start. Um, people can also go to the Rethinking Hell YouTube channel, and there's a variety of videos there that might help them. Um, if they want to familiarize themselves with the best that the, tra- the traditional view has to offer, I would point them to an edited volume from, I think, as far back as 2000. Uh, it was edited by Robert Peterson and Christopher Morgan. It's called Hell Under Fire. Um, I think that's probably the best place to find that view represented. And then in terms of universalists, I would encourage people to check out Robin Perry's The Evangelical Universalist. Um, it was originally published published under a pseudonym. I think it was George MacDonald. Um, but when he uh, resigned from Paternoster, I think it was, he, he came out with a second edition that is under his name, Robin Perry. And that's P-A-R-R-Y. So those would be some books. And, and like I said, the Rethinking Hell website and um, the Rethinking Hell YouTube channel. Um, I am extremely accessible, and I love hearing from people. So if people want to befriend me on Facebook and send me a message, you can easily find me by going to facebook.com slash chrisdate, C-H-R-I-S-D-A-T-E. Um, and uh, we've got a couple of books. People can check out my Amazon authors page if they want to um, get a, their hands on a, on books that we at Rethinking Hell have published. And you just got to go to amazon.com slash author slash chrisdate. Um and I guess those are good places to start. And if you just want to shoot me an email, uh, it's really easy, chrisdate at rethinkinghell.com. And uh, that might be the easiest way to get any to get their hands on any further resources because then I can find out exactly what they're looking for and I'd be happy to suggest options. Awesome. Well, my second question was going to be, where can people find more of the stuff you've done? So you've already got it covered. Well, there is one other place, though. Um, okay. There is my myacademia.edu profile. Uh, so if somebody goes, if you go to fuller.academia.edu slash Christopher, uh, Christopher Date, I think it is, you'll find um, 
a number of videos and debates and, and things I've done, but most importantly, arguably, are some uh, journal articles that I've gotten published in peer-reviewed academic uh, journals. Uh, and and those will I think also be helpful because um, one common question one common question that comes up is what about Jesus what what happened to Jesus on the cross and I've got an article published in the the McMaster Journal of Theology and Ministry on that topic and it's for free and it's available online I've also got another one on the topic of hell in Evangelical Quarterly and if you go to that my academia profile they'll be able to find those things but again. If, if they if they remember nothing else about these various ways they can find out about this view or about our work at Rethinking Hell, just shoot me an email, chrisdate at rethinkinghell.com, and I'd be happy to point them in the right direction. Hey, I would love to, uh, on a personal note, I've actually read the Evangelical Universalist. I'd love to, however, win, but to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, this That book really like was challenging and interesting. Yeah. I, I'd be curious, too, your thoughts. Uh, I haven't gotten to read that one yet but your thoughts on that too versus brad Jersak's book too because i know that you you mentioned him as well um yeah just... yeah I, I hear what you're saying uh, i i i love robin perry um i think i i think he we consider each other friends um and i do think the evangelical universalist <laughs> is probably I, I think robin perry's universalism is the most compelling among all the various universalisms out there because he is um trying at least to base his view on scripture and he and he offers a very theologically compelling universalism that's 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 what makes it so challenging um because i'm i'm a uh, you know i'm i'm a bibliophile I, for me it's it's all about the, the the biblical text and i'm not willing to let theology sort of trump what seems to me to be the plain meaning of scripture but i will admit that the theology that i um derived from my reading of scripture in terms of conditional immortality does not seem quite as compelling as Robin Perry's picture. Um, the problem is just, I don't see it in scripture. And, and that's really how I would characterize this book. It's, it's challenging from a theological perspective. Uh, I don't think it's challenging in any way from a biblical perspective. And, and as far as Brad Jersak, I would say very similarly. Um, although I think Robin's a little better because I think Robin sticks a little, is a little bit more concentrated on the text than Jersak, but I could be wrong about that. You, you, Chris, might have read that her gates will never be shut more closely than I have. So and, I might Andrew, Andrew has read it has read it yeah. most recently. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I actually read Robin Perry's book, and that that I read, I was like, like, oh, like. I'm comfortable saying like this is like a legit like view like I was really compelled but then I watched I googled you know his name and I found some of some of his stuff on your guys's uh channel and that's how I kind of discovered rethinking hell and I, that's how I discovered Bradley Jerzak and a lot of other people but listening to you talk you reference Robin Perry and I was like oh I'd love to hear uh your take on him because some of the stuff you said I could already see like some points of tension but yeah that's interesting yeah, I, I agree with you. It's a legitimate view, provided that that a universalist holds to something like Robin Perry's universalism, which is, yes, there's a hell. Yes, some people will go there. Um, and the only way people are going to get out of there is through faith in Christ. But God in his grace and his mercy, whatever, will keep people alive there long enough to repent and to express mm -hmm. faith in Christ. And eventually everybody will do so. Um, that in that kind of view, I can't find anything that violates any essentials of the faith, and I'm happy to fellowship and minister with somebody like Robin Perry. I just think he's wrong. <laughs> that's <laughs> so. Yeah. That's cool. Well, thank you for joining us. This has been a great conversation. Yeah, awesome. 
It's been my absolute pleasure and honor. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Well, uh, for those of you who like to go foraging out in the forest, you may know that where there's smoke, there's fire. And man, there was a whole bunch of smoke in that podcast. A lot of good stuff. Just we got to all our burning questions and I feel like we laid a lot of great groundwork for future conversations on hell in the future. But if uh, you liked this conversation and you want to hear more, follow us on our podcast stream. You can find us on iTunes, uh, pretty much anywhere that has podcasts nowadays. And you can find us on Facebook at The Better Questions Podcast on Facebook. And Mark Zuckerberg is already following us, so question at you. And we're on Instagram now, at Better Q Podcast. Yeah, so see you next week.